Welcome to the Rejuvenate Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Hawks, and I'm here with my co-host, Elwin Robinson. And a little while ago, we did an episode on peptides, talking about what they are, how they work, and gave you guys a big, big, big list and talked all about them. But today we are going to be talking about peptides, but in particular, Elwin's favorite peptides. So Elwin, talk to us a little bit about why this topic and why today. Yeah, so we got some good feedback on that episode, but I know a lot of people um, had a little bit of criticism maybe around you're not giving very specific recommendations. And of course, that's because I can't give specific recommendations. These are research chemicals. But I thought, you know what? What I can do is actually give my review, talk about why I use them, and also how I use them, how much I use, when I do it, all the rest of them. And that's obviously not medical advice in any way. And very literally, what works for me not, may not work for you. But it gives you an idea about what someone might do, like a, a, a jumping off point, as it were. And I wanted to talk about them. I mean, peptides are awesome. I was really like reflecting back and um, what is like the easiest way to help someone who wants to feel younger, who wants to feel better straight away. And usually it is peptides and hormones first, right? That's the easiest win. And uh, I was thinking a lot about people you know, who say, who are against this kind of thing. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I just want to get everything from a natural diet or something like that. And I do appreciate that impulse and urge. And if that's you, fair enough, of course, I uh, accept all paths. Uh, but the reason why I like this and the reason why I think it's good that it's coming out is because I really feel like that old marketing cliche is actually kind of true of this. It's like, this is the stuff that's been used by the rich and the famous and the powerful for you know, in some cases, several decades now, and at least if it's new and it's, uh, you know, only become recently available, at least now it's used by a lot of them, right? There's a reason why, you know, these Hollywood celebrities and models and, uh, you know, even you could say some politicians and, and you know, um, prominent people, often they do look very young and healthy despite you know, not just despite their age, but also despite the life they must have led, which, you know, must have been pr pretty intense and, and demanding. And they're it's, it's a bit of an exaggeration to say they're all on this stuff, but a lot of them are. And so it's a question, you know, it, if you want to keep up and like be at your best and you want to be competitive and who knows, maybe in 10 or 20 years time, all the technology will change again. There'll be something else that you can do that really puts you ahead of the curve. But for now, this is really it. So I wanted to share, yeah, my experience with my favorites. And then also we'll throw in, uh, if we have time at the end, a few that I wouldn't recommend. And I'll talk about why not. Fantastic. I'm really excited to get to this list. I mean, I know we went over in depth before. So, you know, any listeners that want to check that out, please refer to that uh, podcast that we did on peptides. Yeah. If you don't know what a peptide is, if you don't know what we mean by that, if your only frame of reference of peptides is like collagen peptides, which is the supplement that a lot of people take, that's kind of um, a more processed form of gelatin then definitely watch that episode first because this is going to go straight in the deep end. We're assuming you already know what peptides are and going from there. Right, then let's jump off that deep end. What are we going to start with first? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's the desert island thing. Like if you could only take one peptide to a desert island, what, it, what would it be? Uh, and for me, that would be thymosin alpha-1, which is sometimes shortened to uh, a TA-1. So why is it my favorite? I love Phymosin Alpha 1 because of its strengthening and regulating effect on the immune system. 
Um, our immune systems are under assault these days more than ever before. You know, there's... Um, I don't think you have to go too far into conspiracy world to say that there are factions out there that are actually looking to create more and more dangerous and um, um, contagious diseases, right? That's part of like a military approach for many countries. So the idea that uh, we don't have to worry about our immune system in this day and age is foolish. As we've talked about in uh, other episodes, the immune system is impacted not just by organisms, but also by um, toxins of all kinds, whether it's heavy metals and mycotoxins and pesticides, xenoestrogens, BPA, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. All of those things are also negatively impacting our immune system. Stress is negatively impacting our immune system. So we have so much going on. What is thymosin alpha-1? It's basically the primary peptide that um, supports the functioning of the immune system. So a lot of peptides and hormones are basically going in there and like upregulating or downregulating. So one we talked about, for instance, a lot is the thyroid. And basically more thyroid hormone means more mitochondrial activity. Less thyroid hormone means less mitochondrial activity. Well, it's pretty similar for this, for thymosin alpha-1 and the immune system. More thymosin alpha-1 means more immune system activity, more strength of the immune system. The main gland in the body that would produce thymosin alpha-1 um, is called the thymus. And the thymus is this little gland above the heart. And I say it's little. And the reason is that when we're very young, the thymus is actually a big, strong organ, which is, you know, really, I guess, creating and pumping up our immune system to begin with. And then there's a lot of speculation which seems reasonable that as we get older that thymus really does shrill away compared to before compared to any other organ it really um gets a lot weaker and is producing a lot less thymus and alpha one as a result of that and so because of that process our immune system isn't working as well now it's good to try and rejuvenate our thymus with all kinds of techniques to try and um uh, get our immune system creating as much as it can endogenously but still as we talked about at the beginning, if, if you want to cheat, if you want to optimize either way, if you want to uh, be the best you can be. So when would I take thymosin alpha-1? I actually take it frequently. I do it a little bit differently than what they say. They tend to talk about doing um, a high dose, you know, periodically, like every few days, um, or just taking it if you're concerned about an infection. My experience with it is that there's no like upper limit and there's also no tolerance the only thing that could be said about using it a lot might be that it's wasteful that you don't need it but the way i look at it is that unlike with thyroid hormone unlike with say testosterone um there really isn't such a thing as too much and that's been borne out in the literature that it hasn't been proven that oh if you take you know 10 times as much of this as normally people take that there's any problem ever even if you do it for a very long time and i think that's for the reason i said like if the thymus were strong and healthy like it was when you were really young it would be producing so much of this stuff and so the fact that you're adding some it helps but it's still not going to be any you know it's going to be very hard for you to just in terms of money unless i guess you were very wealthy 
Um, it's not the cheapest peptide, so you'd have to spend so much to get to a level where it might ever be excessive. I guess that might be the reason why no one's ever done it before. So I like to do it a lot because I like to support my immune system a lot. I would definitely make sure that I did it before a flight. If it was possible to take it with me to wherever country I was going to, I would definitely do that as well. Um, I would have it before, even before I go into a big city, before I public transport, I mean, just anything. And if that sounds over the top and uptight, I wouldn't be like scared if I didn't take it. I don't mean that, but I just mean, why not support yourself? Why not give yourself a boost, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm a big, and of course, Fimacin Alpha 1, it's a, it's a fairly big, long peptide. And my understanding is that your body makes smaller peptides out of that. Like it cleaves the peptide into pieces and then those pieces have other functions that are also beneficial secondarily. So even if um, you don't feel like your main immune system needs supplementing, I feel it definitely also has secondary benefits. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Fimacin Alpha 1. The only thing that really um, would hold me back from recommending it uh, to a loved one or something like that uh, would be potentially cost. Right, yeah, because I was going to ask if there were any kind of safety concerns or any space within, like, but I think you touched on it with dosing and, and things like that. But let's just say you've got somebody out there that's got an autoimmune disease where they say, well, wait a minute, if I've got autoimmune and, and you're upregulating and my, my immune system's already causing me damage, you know, can you speak to that? Yeah, it's a great question. So again, I can't, you know, make any recommendations to anyone watching, but if I think of myself, if I had an autoimmune disease and then I started considering it um i would take a lower amount but i have not seen it to begin with but i have not seen any evidence that it would impact that negatively i've only seen evidence that it would help or do nothing because it's not an immune booster like um it it, it well it is but it it supports the regulatory function of the immune system as much as it does the um, attacking part of the immune system. For want of a better word, you know, a lot of the, the different interleukins and the different uh, constituents of the immune system, they're kind of divided into um, either those which are actively, aggressively seeking things to um, uh, deal with, let's just say, to be general as possible, or it's regulating those. They're kind of like managers of those, right? Or generals, right? Troops. Let's not create too many troops. Let's not send too many that way. Let's right. Let's um, let's not have them attack that. That's actually a, a piece of human tissue. You shouldn't be attacking that, guys. So it's almost like a manager. And so, Fimacin Alpha One supports both the regulatory and the the strengthening of the um, uh, dealing with, let's say, attacking function. Although it could be, you know. It's not necessarily attacking because it could be you know, dealing with uh, waste products and stuff like that. But yeah, the type that's actually doing stuff, um, the type that's regulatory, regulatory gets just as much support. So for instance, I would feel much better about using this if I had an autoimmune that disease than I would about using, let's say, echinacea, which is much more of an immune stimulator. Anecdotally, I'll say from my experience as well, um, I've noticed when taking it at the beginning of some kind of infection that it actually makes the symptoms worse sometimes for a few hours, which I interpret as, you know, strengthening the fighting part of it. And so that's the thing that could support what you're saying, Chrissy, that that p 
possibility does exist for someone with autoimmunity, which is why I said I would also start slowly. If I had autoimmunity, I would start a very low dose and then build up and make sure that I wasn't having a reaction to it. But then I found that after that initial period, then with any kind of infection, it's the opposite. It actually makes the symptoms become less. So for me, it seems to only um, make symptoms worse during the first part of an illness when an infection is first there. So it's possible... I think it's unlikely. And as I said, none of the literature supports that it would be an issue, but I would still be careful. Are there any kind of different forms or if somebody's looking into this that, uh, you know, is there a best form or is there just one type? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that's really the same as like all peptides, which we talked about uh, in the, uh, you know, the full peptide episode. Uh, but I will say this type only works um, as an injectable. You can't use it as a nasal spray and all the rest and that's one of the other reasons it may be off-putting to someone obviously if i stuck at a desert island and there was not <laughs> access to safe ways of administering it it wouldn't be my choice i'm kind of you know pre presuming that and i think that maybe on a practicality was one of the reasons why people often recommend to do say two doses a week rather than every day um because you know a lot of people don't want to have an injection every day and in fact i don't have an injection every day i i do it kind of just based on when i feel like it now um, although for a while when I needed to support my immune system, I was doing it uh, regularly. So Elwin, what dosages would be recommended for thymosin alpha-1? Obviously, I can't recommend anything, but I'll say from my perspective, I would use um, around half a milligram uh, per day if I wanted to support my immune system you know, for an ongoing reason. If I were faced with you know, an imminent infection, maybe someone in my house has got something or whatever, then I might do one milligram, even one and a half milligram a day. Um, but again, as I said before, the main rate limiting one of this to me is really cost uh, rather than that you can ever necessarily overdose. As far as I've seen, please correct me if uh, you've seen any evidence to the contrary in the comments. Um, so, but yeah, that's a good amount. That's a good amount between half and one and a half milligrams. Thank you. Thank you very much. So then, Elwin, what's next on your list? Well, I really love Phymosin Beta 4, um, which is also known as TB4, and it's also confusingly referred to as TB500, even though technically, originally, that was meant to be something else. Um, so in fact, yeah, I might as well get to that straight away. So TB4, Phymosin Beta 4, the original version of that, is actually kind of like the OG thymus peptide. So the thymus being the um, uh, one, of the, one of the most essential constituents of the immune system, as we have uh, discussed previously. Um, and so as we get older, our thymus gets less big. And as our thymus gets less big um, and less strong, then it's able to produce less of these peptides, which support the uh, immune system. So thymosin beta-4 is actually the biggest of those peptides. It's a chain of 43 uh, amino acids. And um, thymosin alpha-1, which we've talked about before, is more of a like 50-50, some boosting, some regulating action. Thymosin beta-4 is like pretty much 100% regulating. And so... If you want to deal with maybe supporting your body through potential infection, then I would do that with thymosin alpha-1. 
if I wanted to support the body in not having an excess inflammatory response to anything, whether it's an infection, whether it's uh, an allergen, whether it's a, a burn or a cut, you know, whatever it may be. And in fact, injury, which we'll talk about in a second, is one of the main reasons that this is used. Uh, then I would use thymosin beta-4. And of course, in many instances, I would actually want to use both. You know, like if I had a cut or a burn or an infection or something like that, then I'd want to both boost my immune system to deal with anything. Plus, I would want to um, control the immune system as much as possible to not have an excess inflammatory reaction. The reason why this is so huge, I don't think... Um, you know, you need to be told that inflammation is bad. I think everyone knows that these days watching this. Um, but I don't think we sometimes appreciate how bad it is and how many different systems it affects. Um, you know, the digestive system and the joints are things that we frequently think of. But um, And these days also the cardiovascular system with, um, you know, more issues about that becoming more common. Uh, but, it, you know, it's also affecting your brain, for instance, right? There's a uh, uh, brain and nervous system. There's a lot of uh, talk these days in the scientific community about how maybe things like depression, especially, and also anxiety and certainly cognitive decline and all the rest of it can be caused by inflammation in the, in the brain and in the nervous system. So inflammation is a hugely big deal. Um, as to how we got that mess in the first place of being chronically overinflamed, that's something I talk about in detail in um, uh, other videos. But, you know, for right now, just say whatever reason you're in the mess and whatever lifestyle stuff you also need to change to deal with it, thymus and beta 4 can be really great. Now, this is actually where I first discovered peptides because I was looking up um, mold illness or mycotoxin illness. And so mycotoxins are an interesting thing that they um, really poison the nervous system. They really um, also stop the immune system from functioning properly. So they cause the immune system to be more inflamed. And that's why one of the things that mold illnesses refer to is as um, SIRS or CURS, chronic inflammatory uh, reactivity syndrome. So this is where basically your body starts having an inflammatory reaction to everything, or it seems like everything, right? Um, like every food, every supplement, every herb, every particle in the air, everything you touch, you know, it can get that way and it can drive those minority people who experience that like mad. It's really, really unpleasant. And so they were recommending thymosin beta 4 as a way of just universally, holistically calming that whole inflammatory response down so that then the person could actually start to heal. So that's how I first got into it. It actually did help me with that. I had mycotoxins and heavy metal poisoning very high levels of lead which also creates that inflammatory response um and so i had to um uh try and find something that worked and this was i would say along with cbd thymosin beta 4 and the next one we'll talk about were like some of the first things that got my immune system to calm down and stop reacting to everything so i always have a special place in my heart for that reason now there's another different type of uh, thymosin beta-4 called TB500. So thymosin beta-4 is 43 amino acids in a row. And you can actually take a piece of one or a piece of another or a piece of another, and then they're actually different things. It used to be that that middle piece from 17 to 23 was referred to as TB500. So what's the difference? 
I've just said that TB4 is like generally anti-inflammatory, but I was massively um, simplifying. It actually has loads and loads and loads of different functions, which are very beneficial. Um, now, the middle part, the 17 to 23, is the specific anti-inflammatory part, or seems to be. And so um, if your issue is purely inflammation um, and you have no concern for the immune system, so for instance, if you've sprained something but are otherwise in a very high level of health and you're only trying to reduce inflammation, you're otherwise very, very happy with your health, then you'd probably want to go for something called fragment 17 to 23, which is just the um, anti-inflammatory component of TB4. Why would you want to do that? Well, you get a lot more of that component, right? So if you get 10 milligrams of TB4 uh, or versus 10 milligrams of this fragment, you're going to get a hell of a lot more of those fragments within that 10 milligrams. So if your goal is just to reduce inflammation and nothing else, that fragment is often better. Most companies these days seem to not even know the difference. That's one good way of telling a quality company from another, I'd say, is if they make that distinction and if they offer you both versions, the vast majority do not. Not a guarantee, obviously, but it's an indicator. Um, and so I really like to have both around. I like to have TB4 for like general wellness purposes, like I talked about earlier with the mold and heavy metal toxicity. I actually found out that TB4, for instance, is one of the only things that detoxifies lead from the body. Um, almost nothing does. So that was quite exciting to discover that. This thing I'd been getting benefit from, this might have been one of the reasons why. Um, so... I, I personally like to have TB4, but I like to have the fragment around as well if there's any like more acute inflammatory situation where I want something to heal. Um, and that one, TB4 and uh, BP157, I'll talk about separately, those two are often um, marketed or recommended together as like a dream team for healing. So earlier we were just talking and I want to um, kind of get back to that with um, the inflammation and things like that. And I know we were discussing with um, autoimmune diseases. If somebody has something like, let's say, rheumatoid arthritis or something that's, you know, always it's the immune system kicking in, lots of inflammation, what would you, you know, what would be best for them to look at? Uh, well, in the realm of peptides... I would use Phymosin Beta 4. That would be the number one recommendation. Yeah, it would be this one for that regulating um, uh, effect. Um, yeah, that would really be the main one. I Like, you know, with a limited amount of budget, which most people have, I would put it into that in terms of peptides. But of course, there's a bunch of other stuff uh, which we talked about in detail in the uh, chronic pain episodes. Absolutely, yeah. So I'll, we'll put the links below for all of those other um, episodes that we have done so that everybody can go and take a look. And then I wanted to ask, Elwin, um, what forms are available for these? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, there's actually several with this one. So uh, I've seen it available injectable, as it all, almost always is, but I've also seen it nasal, and I've seen it um uh actually uh, in a capsule form so um for you to uh, go for your digestive system so we'll talk about the relative benefits and drawbacks of each the the only time you'd really want to use the digestive one is if you're trying to reduce inflammation in the digestive system the reason being because it's not that well absorbed so again unless money is literally no object you're going to get so much better value 
by having it injectable than you are with the oral version. But if you want the healing and anti-inflammatory effect to be localized to your digestive system, which many people do, right? They've got leaky gut, they've got, you know, uh, Crohn's disease or, you know, whatever kind of inflammatory situation going on, then that would potentially make sense. Um, the nasal one, I had that before from a company. Um, I did not feel the same benefit from it. My understanding is that it might be similar in that it um, will have a localized effect. So it would be good for reducing inflammation in the sinuses. Some people say it crosses the blood-brain barrier better there to reduce inflammation in your brain. I haven't found that personally, but perhaps it's because I haven't had inflammation in my brain to a degree that that's noticeable. So it would certainly be worth a try if I had, you know, say, you know, strong depression to use a TB4 nasal spray. But the injectable is certainly um, the best value for money, the more immediate effect as well. Like you'll feel it within a few minutes. And what would you say is your favorite form to take it in? Out of those two, if I had to choose, usually the TB4 rather than the fragment because it's hard to explain, but it just has a more, as I said, broad spectrum benefit. And if nothing else for me as well, I know it's um, there's a section of it that the body uses then to transport heavy metals out of the body. So I want that benefit as well. So Ellen, for the dosages for TB4 and TB500, what would be the mainstream or what would be the guidelines there? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, this seems to be another one, and I've said this before about Phymosin Alpha 1, where there doesn't seem to be any upper amount that is bad. And so the main thing that's going to limit you from um, taking more is going to be the cost. The general recommendation I've seen is something like half a milligram to a milligram a day. But I have seen prominent people in the peptide world talk about, look, if you've got a real issue, like the one you mentioned before, for instance, rheumatoid arthritis, um, Chrissy, you could have five milligrams, 10 milligrams a day. The thing is 10 milligrams might cost like a hundred dollars. So that's a lot, right? That's, that's too much for almost anyone. Um, but it may be not if you're really suffering, right? This is a choice that people make. And sometimes, you know, their healthcare is already very expensive and it actually may be a bargain compared to that. But certainly if you're paying for it out of pocket um, and you do not have something that's severely um, debilitating, that can seem excessive. So as I said, the upper limit is really how much you're willing to pay rather than um, how much can you have safely. Uh, I personally, you know, cannot afford, uh, I'm not willing to pay for five or 10 milligrams a day. Um, but so I, if I'm being generous with myself, I'll probably go for something like uh, half to one milligrams a day. Thank you, Ellen. That's really, really, really helpful. So what is next? Uh, so one peptide I really love is BP157. Now, I know I'm not the only one this is, or at least it was up until recently, I guess, one of the most popular peptides of all. Um, and this is really because of its ability to heal. That's the number one thing you could say about it. So uh, BPC stands for Body Protective Compound. Uh, and then 157 is just due to the uh, chemistry of it. So... What does that actually mean? So this is an interesting one that a lot of other peptides we talk about are produced in glands and sometimes uh, organs. 
um, but usually glands. So BP157 is something that's created in the organs, but the organ is interesting. It's created in the stomach. Why that's interesting is because um, the stomach is mainly known for destroying stuff, right? It's for breaking things down with the extremely um, uh, low pH acid rather than creating something, and yet that is exactly what it does. And so I have a theory about this, which is not uh, main like too common that I'll share. Um, but before we get into that, so your body creates this um, super fast healing substance in your stomach, which then, because that's the direction that digestion will go, goes in the stomach, to your duodenum, down to the small intestine, large intestine, etc. So my theory about this is like, what would happen to a person's digestive system if they were not creating an optimal amount of BPC-157? I think that the, B, that the uh, digestive system would start to deteriorate. It would start to have little tears and micro tears it, you know the, maybe the tight junctions wouldn't be as tight you'd start to have intestinal permeability you'd start to have more you know inflammation maybe you'd start to have cysts ulcers all of this kind of lesions all of this kind of stuff right because the acid in the stomach is very very acidic it burns it can be as low as ph1 which is something like you know, you take it out and you put it on the surface and it could just burn through it. Like this is seriously, seriously acidic. So you've got seriously, seriously, potentially dangerously high level of acid acidity in your stomach. And then you've got seriously, seriously toxic, dangerous uh, levels of toxicity in your gallbladder, which we talked about in detail in the episode Liver and Gallbladder, the toxic bile theory, the idea that bile actually is probably the most toxic substance in the body. Um, and that is why the liver has such a fantastic ability to regenerate because it has to because it's continually being burned um, by this bile so it has to keep regenerating so when we're talking about regenerating one of the best things for regenerating is bp157 so i don't think it's a coincidence that your body creates this bp157 just at the site of and upstream of the two main areas that are going to be burn and worn away by your body's own fluids and even you know like the content of a large intestine is pretty toxic as well right um and so that's if the content of the large intestine was in most places of the body it would cause serious damage if the content of the liver was in most places in the body it would cause serious damage if the content of the stomach was in most places of the body it would cause serious damage so it caused serious damage everywhere else but even though those environments are just said are uh, made for that substance there's still going to be some damage, right? And I think that's the reason why your body creates BP-157 is to help the body recover from that ongoing damage from these very toxic substances. So that's why I think it's a really great idea because I feel like, um, you know, many, many people uh, in the modern age, doctors, scientists, but also, you know, in the uh, ancient systems going back a long way, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, they say that the gut, the intestines, the digestive system is the root of most illness, maybe because often it's where inflammation starts, which then becomes systemic, maybe because of many, many other reasons, toxicity that we just talked about. So supporting that digestive system, both by calming that inflammation down, which is more of a thing for TB4, which often is partnered with BP157, but also by helping to actually recover. 
is really, really key. So it's really, really beneficial for the uh, digestive system. I believe it's also very, very essential for the cardiovascular system. We talked a lot in the full episode we did about the cardiovascular system, how um, it's micro tears in the... um, like the walls of the arteries especially and, and other areas as well, that then the body forms clots around it and the clot, when it be, that clotting when it becomes excessive can be life-threatening. But it's like, why is there an excessive clotting in the first place? My understanding is it's these micro tears. And so again, having something which encourages and helps your body to heal more quickly is super beneficial for that process as well. Let alone what it's actually commonly used for, which is injuries right you twist something you break something you tear something this is where bbc 157 has really become famous for athletes especially um you know being told it's going to take six weeks to recover and then it only takes them a week or two something like that with these high doses of bp 157 um and tb 500 and maybe a bunch of other things as well but these are often considered the the key things that help you to heal so so quickly so i'm a big fan of bp157 um i use it pretty much every day for this reason because like i said even if i haven't injured myself now i say pretty much because sometimes i forget to take any peptides so but i mean if i'm taking a peptide it's going to have bp157 in it um it's going to be part of the mix because uh first of all i'm not in a state of perfect health i still have um you know those heavy metals in me which i know are again damaging things burning holes in tissues and stuff like that everywhere they go so to get support with that healing process is always great it's always helpful um and then you know uh secondarily because the gut right the gut is constantly being assaulted by you know um even if we're healthy even if we're in a situation of perfect health like we're we're taking in toxins we're we're um you know taking in organisms there's endotoxins that those organisms create this is all just part and parcel of normal eating stuff and living um but as much as we can support our body in doing that the better now you may say but Ellen, i'm in perfect health i've got a perfect stomach i believe it creates enough of its own bpc great good for you <laughs> peptides <laughs> are really for people who are trying to optimize you know um who but also who need it right so if you don't need it then you don't need it but i'm someone who has a history of having these issues so i love to have bp157 i was going to ask because you said it is made in the stomach but then you were also talking about healing other parts of the body if you like you know get hurt so you know somebody may think oh it's purely just for the digestive tract or the stomach but that's not necessarily the case is it it's not true at all yeah because of course i I said to begin with about how it primarily is you know, in this area, which needs a lot of healing. But of course, it's also in this area where nutrients are absorbed, right? So some of it will get absorbed, it'll go into the bloodstream, and then from the bloodstream, it can go wherever it needs to go. It's interesting that you bring that up because there's actually been research in that area. Because when people first recommended BP-157 for injuries, they would recommend injecting it right into the area of the injury to make sure it gets to the right place. But they researched that and quickly found that actually it makes no difference. Like, if you can inject it at any part of your body and it will go where it needs to go. Now, the advantage of injecting, we can talk about methods next, is what I just said. Um, and so generally BPC is found in injectable. I've also seen it as intranasal. And it's, again, fairly commonly available in uh, capsule form. 
In capsule form, they usually sell a form called uh, BPC-157 arginate. So that's where it's bound to uh, uh, an arginine salt. And so this, they claim, I'm not 100% sure about this, but this is the claim made. If it's in that form, it's um, way better absorbed that way. Because the thing is, otherwise, a very small amount of BP-157 does get into the bloodstream through the digestive system. Not very much is digested. I, there's no definitive evidence about how much of the type that your body naturally produces is absorbed. Um, but when I say the type, I mean it's exactly the same. Um, uh, Phymosin alpha-1, Phymosin beta-4, and BP-157 are all bioidentical. So the type that you buy is exactly the same as in the body. But what I mean is with BP-157, I don't know if the type your stomach creates is naturally bound to an amino acid, to, yeah, sorry, a salt or whatever. Uh, I don't know exactly how that works. I don't think anyone knows, but if you do, put it in the comments. Um, so I don't know how much you absorb with your own BPC, but I would assume it's not that much as well. Because as I said, I've, my belief, my hypothesis is that probably throughout history, we always had a lot of repairing to be doing in the gut. And so that's kind of where it's meant to primarily be. But of course, if you have somewhere else that needs repairing, then, then you need it in your bloodstream. And that's where it can be really, really helpful uh, to use an injectable. For the intranasal one, I found this, again, I think if your sinuses are damaged, it would help. But I don't know how well absorbed it is through the sinuses into the bloodstream. My opinion is that not very well. I've heard people say 50%, so maybe half of it. So I think it's better than for the digestive tract. But um, to be honest, I found it slightly irritating for my sinuses. So I would prefer to inject it uh, by far. And are there any certain dosages that are recommended out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so orally, again, PP157 is another one that is not really about recommended. It's about um, how much can you afford, like because very large amounts can be just fine. I've heard a tiny bit of stuff with BPC about how it's possible to have too much. I think it's conjecture. I don't think it's definitive. But because of those doubts, I think the rec amounts that are recommended tend to be less. So the, I think the dose that I've seen recommended is usually about uh, anything from 100 to 250 microgram, which is between 0.1 and 0.25 of a milligram. So um, the tablets that I've seen or the capsules I've seen have always been um, 250 micrograms. Um, obviously, with the uh, injection bottle, you you choose it yourself, but they're usually sold in like five milligram bottles. So, yeah, uh, I personally have not used more than um, one milligram, but I found one milligram to be just fine. No issues whatsoever. Of course, whenever you're dealing with any compound, there is a possibility of a reaction to it. But I'll say this as someone who was very reactive in the past, um, who reacted to almost everything, I found that. Um, the only thing that my body seems to have, and when I say reaction, the only reaction I got is like a little bit of redness around the site of injection, but that did not happen at all with Phymosin Alpha 1, Phymosin Beta 4, or BPC 157, um, or Phymelin, because those are identical to what your body makes itself. Um, 
if it's something that your body doesn't necessarily make itself, then you're more likely to have that reaction. Now, in oxytocin, you also get a reaction, but that's the reaction of oxytocin. Like <laughs> oxytocin has a big impact on your um, cardiovascular system. It can change your heart rate and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but again, that's not like an immune reaction. That's just a reaction to the fact you suddenly got all this hormone in you. Uh, but yeah, so those natural peptides, I've had no no itching, no redness, no nothing that might indicate that you know I've had anything foreign entered into my body. And this is quite interesting. Like it, it absolutely does happen with some of the other ones, like um, uh, ipamorelin, the growth hormone peptides, for instance, which I think is because um, they are not natural because they disappear so quickly then real the natural ones in your bloodstream they've had to modify them to make them last longer and so that modification makes your body go huh what's that and like give a little bit of an inflammatory response maybe it doesn't happen to everyone so um i would not worry about um having even a large dose of it personally but of course everyone's different yeah, I mean, I think you touched on it as far as, you know, if there were any other safety concerns potentially with this one. You never know how your immune system's going to react to anything. Um, so it's always a concern. And so that's why, you know, we don't recommend anything, especially if you're injecting it. I think the concern about using it orally would be pretty minimal. And I think for that reason, it's allowed to be sold just as a supplement rather than a medicine. Fantastic. Thank you, Owen. So now further into our deep dive, what is next on your list? Well, I really like the peptide uh, GHK-CU. Um, so GHK is the, um, the uh, peptides and then CU stands for copper. So there's a version with copper and a version without copper. The version with copper is usually slightly expensive, um, but that's the version that's naturally found in the body. So... Uh, GHKCU, you could kind of call it the anti-aging peptide. I don't think that would be unfair to say. Um, but the main reason why people usually use it is for the skin. So when I say anti-aging, it's because it has been shown to prevent DNA damage, at least to some degree. Um, it's also been shown that as you get, the older you get, the less and less of this peptide you naturally have in your blood. And when that's the case with something, like it's the case also of DHEA and, and various other hormones, we often say, huh, maybe the lack of that as you get older is part of the aging process. Um, and so, yeah, the, the GHKCU is uh, related to aging, I would say. But the main reason most people use it is for the aging of the skin. So this is a really, really simple one. You can either uh, buy GHKCU, just the peptide. It's a blue powder because of the CU part of it. Copper looks blue when it's um, in that uh, powdered supplement form. And you can stir it into whatever you normally use. So if you use a face toner, moisturizer, I don't know, all these things that you ladies use. I know I say to my <laughs> wife, you know, would you like me to put some GHK copper in one of your bottles and she'll just give me, you know, something and I'll put it in there. So it's a way of upgrading any kind of um, healthy cosmetic product that you already like. Or there are different cosmetic products out there that contain it. Um, and in fact, hopefully we are, we're not close to it yet, but maybe at some point we are planning to bring one of those to market. So GHK is one of the few peptides um, that is primarily used transdermally. 
Uh, it is also sold as an injectable. I tried injecting a tiny bit of it once and really didn't like it. I don't know why it was. My body had a no thank you reaction to it. Uh, I, I was going to say, what was your reaction? Uh, just uh, feeling slightly poisoned, like slightly, I don't know, just weird. I can't remember well, to be honest, but it was like, a, it was an immune system reaction. It was not an obvious one, like hives or something like that. It was more like a neurological one, uh, but it was a very distinct kind of, you know, yuck kind of uh, thing. So, yeah, you could say, oh, well, placebo effect, but it was bad enough that I didn't want to try it again. Now, the good thing is I don't have to because <laughs> it's one of the only peptides that's actually, you know, just as well absorbed through the skin as it is that way. So um, why is it well absorbed through the skin? I have not found really good evidence for that. The size of the molecule is not particularly small um, compared to other uh, peptides, so I don't see that that's the issue. But for whatever reason, it just is well absorbed into the skin. And so a lot of people... Uh, feel really good about how it makes their skin feel smoother and glow and all the rest of it. I'll be honest, because I'm a man, I've not been very consistent using it. Um, I, I was like a year ago or something, but I haven't used it for a while. So I can't say, I mean, I'm 42. I think I'm not too wrinkled or whatever, but I don't know how much of that is down to GHK really. Um, I'll have to be honest. But I'll tell you, it always makes your skin feel good. You know, my wife says exactly the same thing. Uh, she loves it. She He's not interested in most of the things I recommend to her, but she likes this one uh, because she says it, you know, makes her skin brighter and, and smoother and, and, and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I uh, and as I said, I won't go into it in this video because these are meant to be short, bite-sized chunks, but um, there's a whole book about GHK Copper and its benefits that we can give a link to in the description here that goes through, you know, chapter by chapter for hormones, for stress, for... Uh, DNA for you know different organ systems like it, it it has massive benefits for every system of the body. I'll give you a crazy theory if you want a crazy theory. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> so all right, so some of the like ancient aristocrats had this, and this is a crazy theory. It's also a bit of a gross theory. So if you um, are squeamish, then uh, stop watching now. Uh, like skip ahead for for a minute, but. Uh, this idea of bathing in blood, right? There was Countess Bathory um, from, uh, you know, European aristocracy, but there's actually been this thing throughout the world, right? The Aztecs loved to do it. They would be sacrificing thousands of people sometimes. And there's actually been in almost every culture throughout the world, this idea of human sacrifice, eating other humans, which is another conversation, and ba ba bathing in their blood. And... That's terrible, obviously. But I wonder if one of the... And the interesting thing about the bathing thing, it was often done more by women to stay youthful. That's the key thing. So the eating thing was more by men to like take on the strength of their you know, opponents or whatever. But the bathing was more considered to be a thing that promoted beauty. And I wonder if one of the components in the blood was the GHKCU. And the reason being because it's one of the only things, one of the only peptides that's absorbed through the skin. And it's a peptide that, made, that keeps you younger, DNA-wise, to some degree, and it makes you look younger. So I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe, you know. And so, Elwin, are you encouraging? No. What I'm saying is, <laughs> if you've ever been tempted to do that, you don't have to anymore. 
<laughs> all you need to do <laughs> is get some lovely copper peptide, which is very cheap and easy to synthesize. Um, and don't bathe in any blood. <laughs> you mentioned about the different forms. There's the, um, you know, a, a skin application, but the injectable. Is there anything else or are those two the main ones? I've not, have I seen an intranasal? I might have done, but I wouldn't. Um, personally, I definitely wouldn't do an intranasal. Um, I've not seen a digestive one. And I think probably there could be one, but no one's bothered because of the skin. Because the easiest way to absorb anything pretty much is through the skin, right? It's the least troublesome usually. The only problem is it often doesn't work very well. But when it does, like with this, I mean, it's definitely preferable. And then would there be, I mean, with skin application, I suppose, uh, certain recommended doses or what would be, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. The one reason why you wouldn't want to have too much GHKCU that I know of is if you don't want too much copper, because obviously it does contain copper. Copper is something I talked about before. I did a different video where I talked about how copper balances with iron and zinc and molybdenum and how you don't want to overdo any of those too much because it will, down, it will reduce the others. It will cause your body to excrete the others. So um, if you eat like a and have eaten for a long time like a high plant, no animal food diet that's the type of diet you're most likely to end up with excessive copper or conversely if you eat organ meat that's the only animal food that has a lot of copper generally um and then you know you have low zinc and iron compared to copper usually if you're on that kind of diet otherwise if you're on the more the opposite diet if you eat quite a lot of animal food not a huge amount of um uh, plant food then you'd be very unlikely to have an excess of copper again unless you had a lot of organ meat so that's kind of an indication obviously it's always better to test right and copper is a good thing to test for every now and then at least because excessive amounts of it really are dangerous and not a good thing have i seen any evidence that just taking ghkcu can cause a toxic level of copper i have not um and again, uh, the book I recommended earlier, which goes in detail about that, has a whole chapter on that, exploring that issue. Um, however, if you already know you're copper toxic, which some people do or suspect that you are, then I would take it easy with GHKCU. Other than that, because a lot of people actually are deficient in copper, most people don't eat uh, you know, exclusively plant-based diet. Um, that's uh, not that common. So most people actually do have a lack of copper. Uh, I would say having, again, it's kind of the limit of affordability, you know. So often GHK is cheaper than uh, other popular peptides like TB4 or TA1 per milligram. So you often get like, you know, 50 or even 100 milligrams for $100, something like that. Um, so I would say probably if you're like the least you would do would be 50 milligrams um, divided over two months you might go as far as doing 100 milligram in just a month. Wonderful. And then, you know, besides the safety concern of if somebody is too, has too high of copper, would there be anything else that people would need to look for? Not that I know for the transdermal route, which is the only route that I use and would have anyone else use. Fantastic. Thank you, Owen. So, yes, I can see the wrinkles fading now. <laughs> <laughs>
I think a lot of models do use it. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen it out there a little bit. So no, it's great great to have the education on it for sure. And because then it also goes to then you know really looking at the label on those products and making sure you know what you're putting on. It's again enough of a solution where you're getting it, but also making sure that there's not anything else toxic in that um, cream or anything else that you're putting on transdermally. So you're not you know giving yourself something great, but then also potentially you know toxifying yourself even more yes and that's why you know my first recommendation is if you've already found a skin product that you know like and trust and hasn't got any crap in it's very easy to just order pure ghk and add it to that but yeah i know a lot of people it's very actually hard to find a skincare product that isn't full of crap so i would like to get something on the market at some point which has only goodness with ghk added that would be nice we're going to take a quick break to share with you one of our amazing sponsors Genetic Insights. What makes Genetic Insights uniquely valuable is that they test over 83 million different variants, which guarantees a 99.7% accuracy on all of their DNA reports. With over 100 reports available, you get comprehensive insights into what your DNA is telling you about how to optimize your health today and in the future. I found reviewing my results to be incredibly accurate and applying some of the recommendations which are personalized to your individual DNA to be extremely helpful for me and my family. I also loved how easy it was to upload my raw DNA data that I already had from previously using Ancestry.com because Genetic Insights supports uploading raw data from all major platforms. To get your health reports, go to geneticinsights.co and get 20% off today by using coupon code rejuvenate. Remember that supporting our sponsors supports our podcast, which allows us to keep sharing this important information with you free of cost. So go get your Genetic Insights health reports by going to geneticinsights.co and use coupon code rejuvenate for 20% off today. And so then what is next on our list today, Ellen? Well, one of my favorite peptides, and this is my favorite um, bioregulator peptide, is Ovigen. So I talked about bioregulators in great detail in the episode that we did on that, but just a quick reminder. So most of the peptides that are out there are what I call supplemental peptides, meaning they're, uh, they're kind of trying to make up for a lack of your body's not already creating an optimal amount or the amount that you want. Um, in the case of Ovigen, they are these different type of peptides that uh, what they do is, they, and they're very small, usually they're only two, three, or four amino acids, very small peptides, um, and they actually go in and work on healing or regenerating an organ or gland so that then it will create enough of its own peptides. So, for instance, you know, their idea would be this, this whole system which developed in Russia while our peptides developed more in the US and Europe, this, this system developed pretty much exclusively in Russia um, and some of the Eastern European countries, the um, bioregulator peptides. Uh, their system was more focused on um, upregulating or um, euphening, rejuvenating that particular organ and gland. So then it would create more of the peptides that you need for itself, as well as everything else that that gland does. So, I have to be honest with most bioregulator peptides. I've done a bunch, but the and the most famous one that a lot of people have heard of is epitalon, 
which is that bioregulated peptide for the um, pineal gland. Uh, but I would have often had reaction to epitalon. Uh, it kind of feel like little pins and needles feeling just after taking it, which I don't really enjoy. And then when I've tried using it intralasally, um, I found that irritated my sinuses. So for whatever reason, epitalon's never really agreed with me. Most of the other bioregulators I um, enjoy and use sometimes, but honestly can't really tell. But the one that I absolutely can tell with is Overgen. So one of the great things that happens with Overgen for me is that I get a really like um, a nice kind of sweet taste at the top of my mouth, which um, I know it sounds weird, but like I associate with like good hormonal health. This is a whole thing in the yogic system that depending on what taste you get in your mouth, it kind of is a reflection of what's going on in, you know, your lymphatic system and stuff like that. And also what's going on in your hormonal system. So with the Overgen, it seems to create a very pleasant effect. Now the Overgen, um, despite the name, you'd think it supports ovaries, but actually it's um, a liver supporting bioregulators. So it's helping to regenerate the liver. And so liver is one of being something that I've had an issue with around toxicity. Um, and so one of the things that Overgen does is to help the liver um, obviously regenerate and heal which the liver has to do more than any other organ um, and so yeah I just feel a bit stronger I just feel a bit purer from Overgen so I really like it um, personally it's not something that I use every day but yeah we'll get into that and so then within that what would you say you know what are the different forms and the ways that you can take it yeah it's a good question so um, in in the US market I've only ever seen it sold as a um, injectable and a lot of the studies that show that those bioregulators are very effective they are based on the injectable but the the russians and other countries like estonia and kazakhstan and other places that do it uh, they tend to have a full suite of versions of all these bioregulator meaning they have injectables but they also have oral capsules uh, which they claim yes the you're not absorbing that much of it, but they actually give you a fairly big dose. So they claim that you still get quite a large amount out of it. Um, they also have transdermal for all of the bioregulators, including Overgen. Um, and I've seen they even have sublingual. So they have the most, um, like most of these other peptides, either you're getting them prescribed from a doctor or a compounding pharmacy, or you're getting them you know, yourself from some kind of research chemical company that is not very sophisticated. But with the bioregulators, they come from a culture where you can just say what it does without fear of some government agency <laughs> shutting you down. Um, and so because they're quite, you know, just free to share what it does and all the rest of it, they've got quite a good customer base. And I think because they've got quite a good customer base, they've got a full suite of products, you know, like every form that you can imagine, they've got it. Um, so... Now, having said, I said they, that's all companies in like countries that a lot of people wouldn't trust to order from with a consumable. So that is the downside. And I certainly can't guarantee you that any of them are safe or effective and whatnot. So for simplicity's sake, because I order most of them from US or UK sources, I get that one. Uh, well, actually, Canada, I get that from a. Uh, uh, US or Canadian source, the Overgen. 
um, in the injectable form. That's the only one that I found had that like really, really nice effect on me personally. But if you want to dip your toe into the world of peptides and you don't want to inject yourself, uh, bioregulators, all of them, you know, I have issues with liver, so I love Ovigen, but you know, they've got Cardiogen for the heart, they've got uh, Vesolute for the kidneys, they got they got every organ, every gland, um, they got something for. And what they teach is, you know, even if you think you're optimal in every other way, the two parts of you that tend to shrivel away are the thymus, which is the immune system, and then the pineal, which is the kind of sleep, wake, and also to some degree uh, um, recovery, rejuvenation system. And so if you want to keep feeling younger and there's nothing wrong with you, you don't have any organs or glands that you think need any improving, then from their point of view, you would still do at least the ones for the pineal and the ones for the immune system. Let me ask you about this, because uh, so looking at it from the liver standpoint, you know, would this be something then you would take, you know, somebody would look at taking every day, you know, would it be once a week? I mean, like, or let's say, and sorry, throwing a couple of things at you, if, you know, their genetic report came back saying that they had low liver function or the certain uh, SNPs indicating that there was potentially an issue there, you know, would that be something that they would look at? That's a good question. So their perspective on these peptides, the people who created and make available the bioregulators, is pretty much the same that I've been giving about all of the peptides in my videos, which is, um, no, sorry, not all the peptides, but uh, you know, a lot of the most famous ones like TB4, like BP157, like Phymosin Alpha 1, like GHK, which is the more the better, it's up to you what you want to pay, <laughs> right? <laughs> so... Um, in the case of the bioregulators, what they say is if you're optimal, you might just do a 10-day course uh, twice a year. Twice a year, every six months, you do a 10-day course. And depending on what it is, right, capsules, injection, whatever, but it's usually a set amount that they'll sell to you. And then you follow it. They would say if you're ill, let's say you've got a liver issue, as you just said, what they would say then is do it for longer rather than doing it for only 10 days you may do it for a month or you may do it for two months you may do it for three months and take two or three times as much per day so then we're really getting to it get quite expensive right there's no upper limit um the only downside of taking more than you need is that you're throwing money down the drain and none of these are cheap um although compared to a lot of you know other treatments they are cheap but if you compare them to supplements none of them are cheap so uh it's really down to you how much you want to put into it okay and then with what about doses uh yeah so pretty much like i said uh if the russian if you're getting it from the russian eastern european source you know they'll tell you this is 10 day supply this is whatever um if you're not doing that if you're getting it from uh, the US or Canada or UK and you're um, getting more the research peptides where they don't tell you how much to take um, this one's usually sold in 20 milligrams and um, it used to be recommended that you have a lot like that that 20 milligrams might only be a few days worth and then I've seen it actually be changed to say no the correct amount is between a half and one milligram a day uh, one milligram being a good amount, half less if you're trying to save money. 
So that means in theory, if you don't have an issue with a particular organ or gland, but you just want to boost it, you could get one of these bottles, which is not that much, uh, $50, I guess. And you've basically got a year supply. You do, you'd have like 20 doses of one milligram, 10 days every six months, right? So then it's not that expensive um, if you look at it that way. It can, it only gets expensive if you have a real issue with it that you're trying to now resolve and, you know, you're listening to their claims of how to do that. Obviously, I can't make any claims in that regard. So, um, but yeah, if you're doing the, the uh, just optimizing path and uh, there's nothing you're trying to resolve, then actually be you know, pretty cheap and you can maybe consider oh i'd like to optimize my pancreas i'd like to optimize my heart you know you can get a few right if you're just using it in that way and then what about any kind of safety concerns or anything like that uh that's a good question um there's no safety concerns that i have seen at all with any of the bioregulators just like with the um supplemental peptides i've talked about like tb4 tb500 uh, bpc157 um they don't seem to create any kind of uh they don't seem to have any kind of immune reaction to them uh because they're really naturally present in the body um so there's no concerns around um like any kind of reaction except for the concerns that are always there right you could eat peanuts and die right like you never know how your immune system is going to respond to anything but it's no more likely to respond to that than saline or whatever is my understanding. So I use that one with relative confidence that everything is going to be okay. Yeah, no, that de that doesn't definitely sounds like one. Because I know when I did my Nutravel, I got a thing back saying that um, I had something going on with my, um, like I had enough glycine, I had enough glutathione. But when he was looking at it, he was like, oh, there's something in the liver detox pathway, so it's not nutrient. So I'm like, hmm, maybe Ovigen would be good hmm. for me for just a little, you know, small little bout. Yeah, really, there's no harm in it. That's the thing with bioregulators. The worst thing you can say about bioregulators is that you are wasting your money. That's, but it's <laughs> not gonna, um, and of course, this is the thing. Peptides like the Western supplemental peptides work so well that um, a lot of them kind of compare them, a lot of people kind of compare them to drugs. And of course, they're treated that way as well um, because they're that effective, right? And, you know, often they, they require doctor's prescription. There's only a few that don't, like GHK, CU. Uh, but most of them require doctor's prescription. So they're more in that drug category. Now, people in the West who are used to Western uh, peptides who then start using bioregulators like oh, i can't feel anything oh it doesn't seem to be doing anything but if you compare bioregulators to like western drugs and western peptides that tend to have quite a quick action then often you are disappointed but if you instead compare them to supplements or maybe herbs then it's probably you'll be you have more realistic understanding right like if uh there are herbs for every organ and gland, just like there are peptides for every organ and gland in the bioregulator system. And so often, you know, you would expect to wait a while before that had an effect. And so that would be more realistic for the bioregulator class. Thank you, Owen. Thank you very much. And so what is next on your list today? So I really enjoy the MOTC peptide. And this might seem weird. It's uh, when I first saw it, it was saw it uh, advertised as exercise in a bottle. And I, I'm not saying that's true, but I guess the claim is, you know, you can lose weight while staying on the sofa eating potato chips or whatever. Um, 
I don't believe that to be true. And I say it seems weird that this is a peptide that I enjoy because I'm pretty thin. Um, but the it's the reason that it's claimed to be exercise in the bowl that is exciting, interesting to me. And so MOTC is something that stimulates the and optimizes the functioning of the mitochondria. So which would then influence the metabolism? So your metabolism, what does metabolism mean? Everyone talks about metabolism and metabolic health these days, but I see far more people talking about it who really understand what it even means, is what, how it comes across to me. So, you know, it is simply the rate at which your mitochondria, which is the little factories in the center of every cell, produce energy, the rate at which they produce energy. And so... Um, Generally, it's considered that increasing metabolism is good for losing weight, which is true. Um, sometimes it's considered that slowing down metabolism is good for living longer, which I dispute. And we did a whole episode about that, which I'd refer people to if they want to find out more about metabolism. Now, the number one thing that drives metabolism is thyroid. So I would never encourage the use of MOTC before checking on thyroid i would probably also put motsi secondarily to methylene blue which is something that i've talked about before and we'll talk about when we talk about uh, research chemicals at some point so just to quickly go on on that um point about the thyroid would you say that then you'd want that person's thyroid um you know function um better before they would try something like motsi yes absolutely um yeah, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but yeah, taking MOTSI without making sure that you're optimizing thyroid, uh, uh, thyroid first is like, uh, I don't know, what's an analogy? Like trying to choose what kind of vitamin supplement you want to eat while you're still eating fast food every meal. You know, it's like, it's putting the cart before the horse. You have like the basic of metabolism is thyroid. This is something that's missed by almost everyone um in the biohacking biohacking optimization world not everyone there's some good people who are talking about it but it's missed by too many people um so optimizing thyroid is primary optimizing stress hormones is also primary um then if you want to help the whole mitochondrial process in general methylene blue is fantastic for that we'll talk about that in a different episode um but then if you're doing those things or you don't want to do those things for whatever reason, you want an alternative, MOTC I would put next. And MOTC is in the category of uh, there's a couple of different uh, peptides that offer this um, improvement of mitochondrial function. Um, SS31 is another one, I believe. Uh, Humanin is another one. I, I have not liked any of them other than MOTC. MOTC is the one that I felt had a good effect now with that one i actually uh did a significantly less of a dose than is usually recommended so usual recommendation is something like five milligrams a day for a course for like a day of, sorry for a week 10 days something like that uh, but five milligrams is like 50 dollars a time you know so that's uh that's a big that's a big cost obviously people are willing to pay because they want to lose weight um, I felt I didn't want to lose weight. I didn't need that much support. So I was just doing half a milligram a day or one milligram a day, something like that, like a much smaller amount. Um, and I felt it had a nice boosting, energizing effect. So 
Um, I like Motsi. When people ask me for weight loss peptides, I mean, everything's changed since Azempic and semaglutide came along. Uh, I do not recommend that. We'll do a separate video about that. Um, so if someone asks for a weight loss peptide, it must be a peptide and they don't want to hear about or oh, are already doing thyroid, sex hormones, etc. Growth hormone would be another one. But other than that, Motsi would be my uh, my recommended one because even if it doesn't help them lose weight, it will still make them, will make every system in their body work better because every system in your body depends on mitochondrial energy, ATP. So anything that is genuinely helping with that is genuinely helping every facet of your body. You already mentioned doses. So are there any other, are there are different types of forms that uh, this comes in? Uh, I'm pretty sure this is exclusively injectable. I've not seen it in any other forms. And I don't think... Unlike with, you know, the more popular ones like Thymosin Beta 4 and BPC and all the rest of it, I don't think there's been extensive t testing about this in terms of safety because I know you're going to ask me that one next. So <laughs> You read my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so when I do this, I do it more at my own risk, and I must admit because of the high cost um, and because of that lack of safety profile, this is not something that I have on regular rotation. But I do like it. Um, so, you know, if someone gave me a... A credit for I don't know <laughs> thousands of dollars of supplements. It, I'd probably be on my list because I do like it. Otherwise, um, but again, I'm not. My mitochondria is already fairly optimized. I don't have a weight issue. I know people who have a weight issue. Often that becomes a priority for them, and then that's why I thought I'd mention it because it is one of my favorites for that. And it's also a great distinction and education there. Speaking about getting the optim the thyroid optimized first, because otherwise it's not, um, yeah, you're not fixing the issue. This is there to help enhance what your body is doing well. Yes. Oh, and this is great. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying this. So I know we've got another one on the list. So please, please tell us what it is. <laughs> well, this one tends to be quite popular. Um, this peptide, when I recommend it to people, and I actually can recommend this one because the primary delivery of action usually is intranasal. So C, uh, and that is C-Lank and C-Max. So C-Lank and C-Max are very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, they're, for simplicity's sake, brain-boosting compounds, both of them. Uh, they help with learning, they help with regrowing brain cells, they help with cognition, um, they help with focus. They're both fantastic. The difference is C-Max has an energizing quality to it, energizing for the brain and body. And then C-Lank has a relaxing quality to it. Um, so C-Max is more of a dopaminergic and then C-Lank is more of a, a GABA stimulator. So um, I really like to have, you know, first thing in the morning, a little sniff of C-Max, get me going. And then maybe in the evening, a little sniff of C-Lank uh, to calm me down. These are great compounds because they've been studied very extensively in Russia where they were created. They were created many decades ago. Uh, there's a good safety profile on it. Um, the side effects seem to be non-existent from what I've seen and any of the literature that's been translated in any way. Um, it just seems to be a really safe, really effective compound. Now, when I say really safe, I would put C-Max as a stimulant, maybe not as effective as, say, coffee, but I would consider it to be much safer um, because although it has, um, how do we say it? Though it has some kind of stimulatory effect, 
I find it's not a real stimulant because what characterizes the stimulant to me is that it has a peak and then a crash. I don't perceive any crash with C-Max. I just perceive like you feel energized and then you carry on feeling energized and then there's no crash a few hours later. It's just you get to the end of the day, right? And there's also you don't feel jittery at the end of the day because you're still overstimulated. That may happen with different genuine stimulants. So it's stimulating, but I wouldn't call it a stimulant. Um, and so for that reason, I mean, if you're really exhausted, you may not find it energizing enough. Um, if you're really addicted and habituated to having a lot of actual stimulants, then you're probably not going to find it stimulating enough. But if you're someone like me who doesn't use any stimulants, um, it's stimulating in a very pleasant way without creating that crash and without creating that jitteriness. And the C-Lank, on the other hand, is similarly, I would say, mildly calming. Um, so it doesn't have a, you know, like a drinking alcohol kind of level of uh, effect. It's not, or a Xanax or something. It's not big like that, but it has like a nice little taking the edge off kind of uh, thing to it. And I think that's because it really is working in a safe way that it's not as powerful as some of the drug versions. Um, but of course it doesn't have all the down, the drawbacks and downsides of the drug versions, the addiction, the peak, the crash, the withdrawal, the tolerance, all of the you know the reasons why it's not a good idea to take any drugs, C-Lank and C-Max doesn't have. And I have tested that out. I've tried having periods with it, stopped, no withdrawal. Um, so no, yeah, so not only no crash, no withdrawal, really no difference. It's like it's nice, but I could easily forget to have it, and because it's in this place in the fridge, so I often forget. Um, you don't forget to take things that are addictive, right? So. <laughs> Uh, I think there's no addictive quality. It's got a nice beneficial quality. And other than that, yeah, as I said, you know, brain healing, um, help BDNF, nerve growth factor, growing new brain cells, all of that awesome stuff. So I'm a big fan. Right. And so then as you made the distinction, you would take one in the morning and one in the night. It's not that you would either swap it or take them together ever. You can. No, no, you can. That's just okay. an example. Um, if you, I mean, you know, if, if you wake up with anxiety, you can have C-Lank in the morning. And if you need a boost at night, you can have C-Max at night. Um, and you can do them together if you just want to help your cognition in general and you don't want to be stimulated or relaxed, you can actually have both <laughs> to kind of cancel each other out. Um, so you can absolutely do that. I know you're going to ask about dosage next. So how I do that is they always, in my experience, come in a bottle already dissolved. And so I just would have a spray of each because I don't want to be spraying loads of sprays up my nostrils. So whatever they give you, I would want a spray of each. But to be honest, I want that spray to, spray to be as strong as possible. So if wherever you're buying it has different versions of different strengths, I personally would go with the strongest one, the highest concentration. And then for this, would there be, you know, I mean, I th you said it was very, very well researched and very little safety concerns. So is there anything or off the top of your head that you can think of or not really? I... I haven't seen anything. I'd be interested to hear it if someone, again, wants to put it in the comments underneath, but I've never seen any issue uh, with C-Max or C-Lank at the rec recommended amounts, at least, right? Um, I think, I don't know what would happen if you did like a whole bottle worth in one go or something, but again, as I said, because it's always sold, dissolved in the bottles and so much you can get in those at one time, so. Yeah, and we're not <laughs> asking you to try that. That's no. not a recommendation. <laughs> we don't need that feedback. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but yeah, so I've never tried it, so I don't know. Um, I haven't seen anything. But yeah, if you just stick with the amount that is recommended, it seems extremely safe. 
Okay, fantastic. So yeah, what are these, um, the peptides that you wouldn't recommend and the reasons for that? So I'll do two that are well known and two that are not. Uh, let's do the well known ones first. So I personally do not like melanotan. Melanotan one or melanotan two, uh, for me. And I'll tell you why I don't like them. Maybe it won't apply to you. Maybe it's great for you, but this is for me. So melanotan comes from the, the alpha MSH hormone, which broadly is a stress chemical. It's an excitatory stimulatory chemical. Now melanotan, I think at one point, this has changed the peptide that I'm going to talk about after this is um, probably the most popular peptide now. But for a while, melanotan was the most pe popular peptide. Uh, loads of people were taking it. I remember it was like on our mainstream TV over here in the UK, people were overdoing it. Um, and that's because it's a peptide that really works, as many of them do. But unlike a lot of other ones, you can see <laughs> the fact that it works. Um, so what does it do? Um, it stimulates melanin, which is the color pigment, right? So people do it to tan. Uh, it's as simple as that. Will it tan you if you literally do not get any sun? I think that's debated. I think the answer might be no. But the point is you'll get much more tanned from the sun that you do have contact with. And even if you're not sunbathing, just, you know, if you're outside walking or whatever, right, any contact with the sun will stimulate a lot more tanning if you have melanotan than if you don't. Now, that's one reason it's so popular. The other reason it's so popular is because it was called the, uh, the Barbie doll peptide, I think. And that's because, um, you know, it's not famous for having free benefits. It would tan you, it would increase your sex drive, and it would reduce your appetite. Now, all of these are true, uh, except for one to me, kind of. It definitely does tan you. However, there is such a thing as being too tanned. There is such a thing as having too much pigment. This is where you're more likely to get melanomas and various other issues. So I'm very wary about that. But to be honest, it's not the reason I don't take it. Um, another thing it's supposed to help with is sex drive. I say supposed to. Um, oh, and I guess the fourth benefit is uh, anti-inflammatory. So the part, so melanotan is quite a long hormone that's a similar to a, a peptide that you create naturally in your body called uh, alpha MSH, as I mentioned earlier. So melanotan is similar. So a piece of melanotan is also sold separately as another product called KPV. So, that, so you know, peptides are chains of amino acids. So a little portion of that chain is sold separately as KPV, and that's sold as an anti-inflammatory peptide. I'm not a fan of that either. I would say save your money and get, you know, TB4, TB500 instead. Um, and another portion of it is sold separately called PT141. And this has actually been licensed as a drug by the FDA in America for, uh, I can't remember what they call it, like female doesn't want to have sex syndrome. I don't know what they call it. I can't remember. But uh, a, a lack of sex drive in women. Um, they, they came up with some name for it, um, separate for if men have it. Um, so they sold it for women. Now, I think it hasn't become hugely successful uh, because you've got to inject yourself. And most people don't want to inject themselves. So um, that's the only way PT141 works. It's also the only way melanotan works. So it has that anti-inflammatory anti compound. 
it has this sex drive boosting compound and it has this tanning part to it and it reduces appetite. So what's not to love? Well, to me, the thing was not to love was the reduction in appetite. And it made me, it, it did more than just um, um, reduce my appetite. It made me nauseous. I really did not like it. I believe I already have a tendency to overproduce alpha MSH. Upstream from alpha MSH is uh, ACTH, which is like this primary stress singular. So to me, the reason why I don't like it and don't generally recommend it is because it's a stress chemical. Now, the exception to that would be if you need more stress chemicals. Some people do. Some people genetically naturally overproduce stress chemicals. Some people genetically naturally underproduce stress chemicals. If you find it really hard to be motivated and get going, not because you're exhausted, just because whatever, then you may be someone who's low in stress chemicals. And then something like melanotan may well be good for you. If you're that type of person, you also tend to overeat. Um, so, and you tend to have a lower sex drive, but if you're a kind of person who tends to have a high stress drive, who tends to have not a huge appetite, who tends to, um, uh, you know, be quite a stressy person, then I would not recommend melanotan. So it really depends on what kind of type you are. Yeah, no, I know, you know, from the previous episodes talking about metabolism, especially if you want to optimize and have a lot of energy and move through life very well, then reducing appetite and, you know, that's just going to mess with your mitochondrial function, your thyroid, everything. So, yeah, that doesn't sound like a good one to, to take. Thank you, Chrissy. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. That's absolutely true. So even in general, I don't think reducing appetite is a good idea for the reason you just said, because it slows down metabolism. But, um, but yeah, there are exceptions. There are like that type of person who's just always hungry, always eating, um, quite sluggish, you know, and that person maybe would benefit from this. I, I don't want to say it's universally not good, but it's certainly not one of my favorites. And you, you mentioned that you had another one on the list. So please, can you let us know what that is? Yeah, so the number one peptide that is recommended uh, and used these days per my understanding. So for many years, it was TP4 and BPC157 for injuries. But these days, it is uh, semaglutide, often referred to as Ozempic, which is a GLP-1 activator. So there's a lot to say about this not being good. And it's actually a, you know amazing that I have to tell people that it's not good because it's pretty obvious that it's not good. But... I also completely understand why so many people are using it, and it's because it does actually work. So let's talk about what it is, how it actually works, and then it'll probably be quite apparent why I don't uh, use it or recommend it. Um, what it is, is something that tells your body it's already full. That would be the simplest way of explaining it. There's complicated hormonal processes with um, signaling satiety and signaling hunger, um, and this signals satiety quite strongly not in the same way that um, oxytocin does um, oxytocin kind of um, which uh, I'll talk about in a hormone episode oxytocin uh, signals more fulfillment is how I would describe it although satiety would be another word for it the type of satiety felt by um, created by ozempic or semaglutide is specifically food right I'm not hungry. That's what it's saying. It's not that it makes you satisfied in life in, or emotionally in general. So it does that by um, activating this GLP-1 uh, uh, receptor. 
So what's the problem? The problem is when you when your appetite is so much decreased, you eat less. But Elwin, that's not a problem. That's a good thing. I'm eating too much. That's why I gained all this weight. Uh, I understand that, but here's the thing. Okay, so first of all, when you take a Zempic semaglutide, if you've taken it, I don't think you have, right, Chrissy? No, I haven't. No. So when you take it, you feel really, really sick. Really sick. So it's beyond just not appetite. It's like, ugh, you know? A lot of people feel poisoned, like, and it's really bad the first few days, and this is something you take once a week, and then maybe, like, day five, six, seven, you're starting to feel better, and you take it again, and, oh, my God, like, you feel really sick again. What's so, causing that sickness? Um, I don't think it's 100% known, but my understanding is it's activating. It's like it's beyond just satiety. It's like, ugh, <laughs> don't give me any more. That's the signal right. that the body is basically giving. Um, it, it's a specific type of nausea. Like it's, if you have an excess dopamine, that can lead to nausea, which is why, you know, quite often psychedelics, if you take those, you have this nauseous feeling. It's not like that. It's it's a different kind of nausea um, that, you know, yeah, feels more like a being poisoned kind of thing um, rather than a stimulated thing. Like, you know, if you take strong stimulants as well, you don't have much of an appetite, but that's, that's the dopamine feeling. This is the GLP-1 feeling. Um, hard to describe, but so um, it's been, so it makes you feel really sick that, you know, before you take it, they say like, do you have panc pancreatitis? Do you have this? Do you have that? no okay because if you did you shouldn't take it and then we and then they have to test you regularly or they should to make sure that it doesn't give you those things right so it can cause inflammation of the pancreas that's one of the uh, uh side effects that it can cause um but back to the appetite thing so the main thing is will you lose weight on it probably why because you eat so much less at least once you found your dose person i know who did it like they told me they were eating like 70% less when they were on it, which they may have been exaggerating, but um, probably not hugely, right? Maybe it was actually 30% less, but even 30% less calories is a huge reduction in calories. Like it's a, it's a massive shift for your metabolism. So um, when you're eating that much less, you will lose weight. But how are you losing weight, right? When you're eating that much, you are going to be slowing down your metabolism. You're going to be creating less thyroid hormone. When there's less calories available, your body assumes that there's a starvation potential situation going on, that there's not enough food, and so it down-regulates energy production. Short-term, if you're really um, limiting the calories, you will also lose weight because you literally have to. Your body will burn some of the fat for a process called lipolysis uh, and gluconeogenesis as well. It'll burn muscle and fat as fuel because it has to. Um, but what happens if you stop taking it? What happens if you keep taking it? You might get pancreatitis, all these other side effects. It costs a lot of money. You're going to feel sick all the time. You're going to have a slow metabolism, which is not great for every other system of your body, your immune system, your nervous system. It's slowing down your digestion, which means transit times will increase. Take longer for food to get through you. Is that a good thing? Probably not you're more likely to have uh, fermentation going on. You're more likely to have uh, bad bacteria, pathogenic bacteria, be able to get a foothold because they're not being 
moved through quick oh sorry because the food that they eat the substrate they eat is not being moved through quickly enough it's been rotting for too long before it goes out so slowing down the digestive system slowing down everything um is not a beneficial thing it also means when your metabolism is slow slow down your body still needs energy and so it will up regulate cortisol and all the other stress chemicals so for gluconeogenesis, lipolysis, the stuff I just said, for your body to burn that fat, yes, you want it to burn fat, um, but you don't want to have high levels of stress chemicals constantly. This has been proven to prematurely age the body, have a detrimental effect on pretty much every system of the body. Stress chemicals occasionally for you know 20 minutes a day or whatever might be good for you, but if they're all day because you're starving all day or feel starving all day, that's not good. It's absolutely going to drain you. It's going to deplete you. It's going to prematurely age you. And although it works, I think the average is like 10 to 15% of you know, body weight lost. As soon as you stop eating it, it's exactly the same problem as of you dieting, but worse. Because most people can't diet to the degree that you are able to diet with semaglutide. Most people can't voluntarily restrict their calories for for 50% for a long time because the body just gives these unavoidable cravings because it actually needs fuel. Um, and so with a semaglutide, you can repress that craving, um, but you're going to end up depleted in nutrients and you're going to end up with slow metabolism. This is one of the other criticisms I heard of it. A lot of people love this in the fitness scene, the gym scene, but what they worry about is people are not getting enough protein. Protein are the building blocks of every system in the body, including peptides, which are just made <laughs> up <laughs> out of the amino acids that we get from protein. So every system of the body suffers when we don't digest enough protein. So different. So most people who are taking semaglutide are not making sure, I mean, make sure I get all the protein I need and make sure I get all the vitamins I need and make sure I get all the minerals I need um, and then the right essential fats and do all that while still having way less calories. Most people don't manage that. Most people don't manage it with a normal amount of calories or an excessive amount of calories, let alone with a restricted amount of calories. It's very difficult to get all those nutrients um, with so few calories. So unless you're really on top of it, you're likely to end up nutrient depleted and you will definitely end up with a slower metabolism and an underactive thyroid. Then what happens when you stop taking it? The kind of good news about the sickness is as soon as you stop taking it, the sickness and the nausea and all the rest goes away, your appetite comes right back. And you're going to want to eat, and you're going to want to eat a lot, partly for whatever psychological reason, but also just because your body's low on fuel and it's low on nutrients. It's going to be like, ah, trying to get it back again. And then you're going to be eating excessively on a slow metabolism. What's that going to do? It's going to make you gain weight. So I don't want to get all conspiratorial, but... I don't understand why things like this are popularized and pushed even by, you know, extremely successful people who I respect um, are using this or recommending it um, when it makes so much sense and it's so much more effective to just optimize the basic hormones that relate to weight, which would be and, you know, we talked about this in the weight loss episode, but in a nutshell, it's the sex hormones like progesterone, estrogen, testosterone. It's thyroid. It's insulin. If you can get, uh, and, and it's the adrenal hormones as well, cortisol and adrenaline. If you can get those balanced and you can get those sorted, which actually is not that difficult. 
as long as you have a doctor who tests you and, and gives you what you need, it's so much more effective and it's actually sustainable, which semaglutide and ozempic is not. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like it's a long term, you know, it's not something that's going to, the benefit for, you know, long term is so not there. And so if somebody has been prescribed it and is on it, you know, like the, that's what I always ask my friends, like, well, what's the what's the plan? What, what's the plan with your doctor? I mean, like, is that it for you for the rest of your life? You just have to keep taking this or, or what's the end goal here? I was thinking now people could go rightly so, well, oh, when it's the same with bioidentical hormones, you got to keep taking thyroid, you got to keep taking progesterone. So what's the difference? So let me ask that question. That's the other issue of Ozempic. I haven't even come up yet. I haven't even said yet is you feel like crap the whole time you're on it. You're not eating enough food. You're not enjoying the food you are eating in many cases. So you don't have enough energy to do stuff. Every system of your body isn't working as well. You don't feel good most of the time. Now, because you're losing weight, maybe psychologically you're going to feel better in some way. But if you compare that to optimizing your testosterone and progesterone, optim which is going to give you, you know, the right confidence and relaxation all the rest of it optimizing your adrenals so you're going to be cool and relaxed but with enough focus and clarity optimizing your thyroid which means you're going to have you know, an abundant amount of energy uh, a strong fast metabolism like optimizing your insulin which means that you're going to be balanced you know and insulin and estrogen and thyroid are really like the primary drivers for weight gain in the first place so you feel so much better when you take hormones. In fact, one of the things, one of the criticisms about hormones is almost it's like it's cheating because you, it works so well when you feel so much better, you know, whether it's men taking TRT in their 50s or women taking bioidentical, usually progesterone and, you know, uh, testosterone, sometimes estriol as well. Like everyone always talks about how amazing they feel and they wish they'd done it earlier. Um, if someone ever says that about Ozempic, they're talking about the fact that they actually managed to lose weight. They're not talking about how they feel feel because how they feel is not good. Yeah, that's a great distinction. Really good. <laughs> really good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sure, I look great, but I feel like I can't say it. I feel crappy. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 So those are the two. Do you have some more for us? Yeah. So uh, one peptide that I don't recommend is called, is called LL37. So LL37 is a cytotoxic uh, peptide advertised as such it cytotoxic means is toxic to your cells why on earth would you take that it's one of the primary things that your immune systems actually creates to kill organisms that it doesn't like so there are certain kind of people and influences talking about it helped me with this disease it helped me with that disease it helped me with this problem the thing is it is toxic. And so um, when I took it, I did not feel good. It created like a, a bit of a rash around where I did it. Someone else I knew who took it, they had a really strong rash and it lasted like ages. They had discoloration on their skin from where they took it for many months afterwards. Not surprised when it's called toxic. I also didn't experience any benefits. I do not personally know anyone who's experienced any benefits. So I wouldn't begrudge anyone who said that they've had a great experience with it that's great good for you um, but i would say there's so many other peptides and indeed so many other strategies that you could try for whatever issue you would want to consider ll37 i would at least recommend to put it 
near the bottom of that list. I mean, maybe you'd want to try it before certain drugs that had strong side effects and stuff like that. Um, but it's not a million miles away, I would say, from a chemotherapy agent in being psychotoxic. And so in that, you know, it's, it's something that works by killing part of you. And so although that can be beneficial, absolutely, I'm not denying that. Um, sometimes your body does not break down cells like it should, that process of apoptosis, and that is the problem. But LL37 definitely wouldn't be the first thing that I would go to without a doctor's supervision. That's true of all the peptides, but it's really true of this one. Beautiful. Yeah, no, I haven't heard of it, so thank you for that. Uh, if I see that pop up, I've got the education <laughs> now, so thank you. <laughs> thank you. So uh, I believe there was one more, Alwyn, and what is that final one? Yeah, so there's a peptide called VIP, which stands for vasoactive intestinal peptide. And this is something that I would recommend in a certain case, and then I would not recommend generally. And, and I wanted to point this out because I've seen it like promoted in some cases, the general health and wellness peptide. And I think that is a bit of a stretch. So vasoactive intestinal peptide is quite interesting. It vasoactive, so that, you know, uh, implies circulation. Um, intestinal implies intestine. So it's talking about like increasing the circulation to the intestine, right? The name of it. Um, and that is what it does. It helps the process of uh, peristalsis as well. And it seems to have some kind of very magical effect for a certain type of person. So the type that I've seen that I personally, like if I were in that position, I would want to use it, would be um, people who have had uh, some kind of mold illness, some kind of heavy metal illness maybe, and who have now resolve that and cleared it up, but who still have a sluggish digestive system. Um, for some reason with those people, what people who have who specialize in that have found is that giving them VIP when they sh when they should be better because you've already dealt with everything, you've got the toxins out, you've dealt with the pathogens, you've dealt with the inflammation, everything should be good, but it's not then you give those people vasoactive intestinal peptide and suddenly it's like a light comes on. It's like everything starts to work again. It's fantastic. It's quite a complex one. And so I could do a whole episode on it, but I just wanted to mention it's great in that context. But the reason why I wouldn't generally recommend it is because it increases prolactin. And so prolactin is a hormone um, that is antagonistic to dopamine. And dopamine is a neurotransmitter that basically makes you feel good. It's a simple way of putting it. It also gives you energy, motivation, mental clarity, and all the rest of it. And if you don't have the energy to do stuff from dopamine, you are either like depressed or fatigued. You're not doing stuff or you're doing stuff with stress. And so most people in life are doing stuff fueled by stress or they're not doing stuff. And we don't want to be in either of those categories, you know. We want to be in the category of I do it because I actually enjoy it. <laughs> and that requires dopamine. And so the killer of I do it because I enjoy it is prolactin. And so uh, we want to avoid things that raise prolactin unless we can't avoid it. So I'm not actually against VIP. If you need it, if you have a professional telling you that this at this stage of your healing journey, this is going to help you, please take it 
don't not take it on my account but don't just generally pick it up and go oh general health well let me give it a try because um in fact it may be having that very unfortunate side effect it's a great list owen i wanted to quickly ask because i know we talked about um i'm going to jump into charcoal because we talked about that in the previous episodes and that um you know it will interact with drugs per se but not necessarily supplements what is its relation with peptides and things like that like do you need to be aware to take your charcoal and your peptides away from each other it's a good question so obviously anything other than intestinally irrelevant right okay if you're injecting transdermal intranasal it doesn't matter um, because the charcoal is only going through your digestive tract with your digestive tract, it's a good question, and I don't think it's ever been fully clarified. What they've done with charcoal is they've tested its impact on loads of different toxins, and it seems to be very good at absorbing the vast majority of them, but not all of them. And they've tested it with most of what are considered to be the essential nutrients, and they found, with the exception of A, vitamin A and E, um, it doesn't absorb any of them. And on this show, we have the opinion that most people have enough vitamin A, so we're not worried about that. Um, and E as well, even though it's classed as central nutrient, there's no real disease if you don't have enough of it. So not hugely worried about E as well, unlike you know B1, B2, C, D, basically all the best of them. So I'm not that worried about A and E. Um, with this peptide, with any peptide, I don't know. I personally would... Uh, not take them at the same time. I would take them, you know, an hour apart. I would class it that way. Not, I don't know, but because it's said to be so expensive, I wouldn't want <laughs> the possibility to be being wasted. Now, having said that, given um, the nature of what tends to be, because the attraction is not some physical thing. It's not like a, a puzzle piece that has to fit in. It's a, it's an energetic thing, right? It's the electrical charge of it that will dictate whether the activated charcoal absorbs it or not so from that perspective because the peptide is simply a chain of amino acids there is nothing about it that should be being absorbed by charcoal so it should be absolutely fine but because peptides are so expensive um i personally would keep, <laughs> keep them apart just in case because it hasn't been proven Beautiful. Thank you for that. And do you have any other final thoughts as we bring this episode to a close? Uh, those are my favorite peptides. What are yours? You know? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we haven't talked about a couple of hormonal peptides, and that's because I'll talk about them. We'll do a separate hormone episode soon. So I haven't talked about oxytocin. I know I'd request to talk more about that, and I will. And we haven't talked about um, growth hormone peptides, but that's because they're really hormonal. So we'll... We'll deal with that when we talk about hormones. And I want to do that soon because, as I said, you know, more, as I'm working with more and more people again, I'm just realizing the obvious fact, which is, yes, I want to help people with detoxification and nutrition and all the rest of it, but you kind of want to get those instant wins with people as quickly as possible for them to just feel great. That's why you know, I call one of my brands Feel Younger. And the, really, the, I'm not saying it's always smooth sailing and I'm not saying it's always immediate, but the quickest way to get to feeling great with like minimum effort required on the part of the person, like they don't have to change their whole life, 
They don't have to start exercising differently, completely differently. They don't have to start eating completely differently. Like to just start, because look, not that I'm telling people they shouldn't exercise differently or eat or more or eat differently or, you know, uh, uh, sleep differently or, or whatever it may be. I do recommend all that stuff. I've talked about loads of lifestyle stuff throughout my career. But what I found is telling someone to meditate every day or telling someone to jog every day versus them actually being able to do it are often a universe apart. And so generally, the best people, what they try and do is they try and motivate you by talking about how amazing it is, right? Oh, there's so many benefits to meditation. It does this and it does this and it does this. And then hopeful, hoping that the next time, the next morning or whatever, and you wake up and you go, oh, I suppose I should actually meditate, right? Like that it actually gets through. But a lot of this, and then a lot of time people try and then they can't, right? They start getting racing thoughts and they're distracted and they're itching and they're this and that. And so from my point of view, I'd rather get someone in a place where they can kind of feel okay enough to actually do that stuff. So yeah, to have enough energy to want to exercise and to not feel exhausted afterwards. Um, you know, to have enough inner peace, inner calm, which is largely a hormonal neurotransmitter thing to be able to meditate without it seeming more like a torture session um, or to have enough, you know, dopamine to be able to set goals without feeling like it's, you know, uh, um, what's the word, pulling teeth or whatever, you know. So all that personal development, productivity, health, wellness, biohacking, you know, with ice, ice baths and all the crazy stuff, uh, whatever it may be, it's all good but you need a basic level of functioning before you feel like you want to do that stuff. And with a lot of stuff like intense exercise, the cold I talked about, um, uh, certain ways of eating, they can actually make you they can actually make you better if you are above a certain level of health, but they can make you worse if you're below a certain level of health. And so we want to get to that level where we can start doing things that are good for us. First of all, that we have the motivation to do it and stick to it. And second of all, that we can enjoy the process. And then third of all, that it is actually beneficial for us. And so peptides uh, and hormones and sometimes nutrients are like a really good starting place for that. Wonderful, Ellen. And thank you, everyone, for your time and for joining us. And again, please, you know, put your comments down below so that we can bring you some more episodes or anything that you're intrigued about, or if you've got some insights on any of the peptides that we've mentioned today or on any of our other episodes that we have released, please leave your comments below. Remember to hit the bell icon so you don't miss an episode. And also, you know, subscribe and we'll uh, bring you more episodes that you're interested in. So take care and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, I want to tell you about a way that you can support the podcast while also getting great deals on high-quality supplements that Ellen and I personally use, and that's Feel Younger. What I love about Feel Younger is that they have great quality products with minimal fillers at a very affordable price. You can call their customer support team 20 hours a day, 7 days a week, and in my experience, they're very helpful and friendly. And the thing I love most of all is the amazing descriptions that Elwin has written about each product category on that topic. And each product has so much education on it that I've actually learned more from reading the descriptions than I have from a lot of articles. So to support the podcast, please use Feel Younger for all your supplement needs. And to let them know we sent you, use promo code RejuvenateMe for 20% off your first order at feelyounger.net. That's 20% off your first order using promo code rejuvenateme at feelyounger.net.